Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. And we're going to dig into a new topic today, which is really exciting, which has to do with the nutrition and the function of macrophages. And we're specifically talking about a particular nutrient, one that is absolutely essential to the function of these macrophages, both excuse me, tissue resident, as well as those that are recruited, and that is iron. Iron is so important here. Iron is one of those important minerals that needs to get to and be present in so many different organs and so many different cells. And today we're going to dig into how iron is utilized and metabolized within the macrophage and to support the immune system. Joining me again today is JP Erico. Thanks for joining, JP. Great to be here. Wonderful. So today we're digging into this topic that for me is a little bit more... um, it's an important one that hasn't been explored much, and that has to do with particular nutrients and how they play a role in specific cellular function with regards to macrophage and immune system function overall. So let's talk a little bit about iron in itself. What are those important functions, those homeostatic functions of iron within our body? Well, obviously the most important thing that iron is used for in the body that everybody knows is it helps carry oxygen in your blood to all the cells in your body. The protein that holds the iron is called a heme. That's why you have hemoglobin in your red blood cells. So red blood cells are the primary users of iron for every cell in your body because every cell in your body needs to get oxygen delivered to it from your lungs through the red blood cells. And the one of the beautiful things about iron is it has this ability to bind to oxygen in one state but then then release it in another state and your cells can control that that state so that the iron is first bound at the lung tissue and then released at the cell yeah and that's one of the obviously the single most important function of iron is transportation of oxygen from the lungs to the cells and for cellular respiration to then be able to occur There are many other functions of iron as well. Why don't we dig into some of those things like DNA synthesis, et cetera? One that's near and dear to my heart is the fact that hemoglobin and heme aren't the only proteins that can incorporate metals, specifically iron, into them and use them for uh, catalytic purposes or to allow them to do the chemical processes that they need to do. The ones up in the central nervous system that are particularly interesting to me are the synthesis of neurotransmitters, the synthesis of serotonin, the synthesis of your monoamine neurotransmitters, the production of dopamine receptors, GABA. All of these neurotransmitters actually are synthesized or the receptors are synthesized in partnership with proteins that have iron incorporated into them. So that's a big one. But iron isn't always in use in the body. The body needs it. It's such a critical element to have around that the body stores a tremendous amount of iron. I mean, the primary place that it stores iron is in your liver. So hepatocytes, which are the cells of the liver, are particularly capable of storing iron for the long term. And then uh, it's released in periods of time when more iron is needed, and it's delivered by macrophages or just through the bloodstream to uh, the cells around your body that need the iron. Okay. And obviously then the liver is kind of that storage component for iron. I imagine it stores it in the form of ferritin primarily? It does primarily, yes. But let's back it up and let's talk about how we even get iron into our bodies. Most people aren't around chewing on girders or balls of iron, but iron is incorporated into all life Plant cells have iron and need it for their cellular processes just the same way animals do. But animal tissue and plants provide us with a lot of iron in our daily intake. But interestingly, the amount of iron that we get on a daily basis through our dietary intake is only a small fraction of what's needed by your body on a daily basis. So the question is, where does it come from? And the answer is that the dietary iron that we get on a daily basis which is only about two milligrams and is only about 10% of the overall iron that's used, is augmented by the recycling of iron 
from red blood cells. So red blood cells don't last tremendously long. They last for maybe a few months at most. And so on any given day, there are literally hundreds of billions of red blood cells that are dying. And the job of the macrophage, or one of the jobs of macrophages, is to eat them up, the dead ones, and to recycle the iron. Now, but let's step back and say, okay, how does dietary iron get into the body? Mm -hmm. So you've eaten something that has some content of iron in it, and that iron can come in, in a couple of different forms. One form is just regular iron ions that are floating around in solution, and they get into your digestive tract, and those iron molecules are imported by cells, the endothelial cells on the lining of your gut in certain areas in your intestinal tract that are designed to absorb that iron through a certain receptor. The receptor happens to be called DMTI, uh, divalent metal transport. And that process incorporates, imports that iron into the cell, and then it transports it across that cell to the other side and then releases it. In the process, it changes its ionic state and it does it sometimes bound to a protein structure that carries two irons at a time called transferrin. And so the process of absorbing that iron and getting it into the system is important. And when there's a failure of that process, then you can end up with iron deficiencies and anemia. That's one possible way of getting anemia. Once the iron is in circulation in bound to this transferrin protein structure, then it can be absorbed either by the liver or by macrophages and transported around to places where, for example, where red blood cells are being manufactured. And so that process is managed by macrophages transporting that around. And where those red blood cells are being recycled, that process has a lot of transfer of iron going on. Iron storage is a different story, and we'll get into that, but that's a preliminary look at how iron gets into your system and one of the key places where it's used. I believe in some of the nutrition work that I've researched myself is that animal tissue tends to contain significantly more iron than plants, but both require it and both are sources of it. Certain plants will have obviously more than others. And what's really interesting is for those who choose a vegan diet, iron isn't actually something that they generally need to supplement often. Obviously, each individual will have their own particular case, but iron can make its way in through a plant-based diet as well. For those who choose to have a more omnivore, carnivore-esque diet, iron generally is not a concern at all, which is quite awesome. So heme iron is primarily the way that you're going to get that in if you're having animal tissue as well. Yeah, uh, heme iron and transferrin iron yes. from animal tissue. But as you said, there are some plants like spinach and broccoli and lima beans that have high levels of iron. I think anybody who's old enough to see the Popeye cartoons certainly knew that spinach made you strong. And part of it is the idea that iron is an important part of your diet and, and getting in. It's also got a few downsides. I happen to make kidney stones and uh, spinach has lots of oxalate in it. And so, I, so for the people who make kidney stones, don't think that iron is the only thing that you have to worry about. You have to worry about kidney stones too. Yeah, you want to be careful. And when it comes down to nutrition and making the choices that work best for you, do your research and each individual is going to be different. Nobody needs to follow a prescribed diet completely on their own. I think we all need to figure out our own individual diet that works well. So for some people, oxalates are a major issue. For others, not so much. And so be really particular about how you make those decisions when it comes to dietary sources of not just iron, but all these other nutrients as well. Yeah. And your body has the ability to recognize when there's too much iron that's been taken in. Obviously, the liver has a tremendous ability to store iron. But one of the other things that the liver can do is recognize that the percentage of transferrin in the bloodstream that has iron bound to it has reached a level where it needs to regulate iron intake and upregulate iron storage in other places. So let me back down and break what I just said down to the point where it's, I think, a little more digestible. Um, no pun intended. Um, when you've eaten a lot of iron or you have a lot of iron in your system, the protein transferrin that binds iron in your bloodstream will have some percentage of them will be fully bound. That will have two irons attached to them. Once that percentage level gets to a very high level, 
your liver has sensors, the transferrin receptor two sensors. So there's transferrin receptor one and transferrin receptor two. Transferrin receptor two is expressed on your liver cells at high levels, and they see or view the level of transferrin bound in your bloodstream at a high enough level. Your liver cells will produce a hormone called hepcidin. And hepcidin, when it's released into your bloodstream, is a signal to all of your cells to stop taking in iron from your digestive tract, so the endothelial cells, and to prevent the release of it. So it's even more important to prevent the release of that iron. So to keep it inside the cell. And most cells have the ability to store some level of iron. Macrophages have a pretty high level, only bested by hepatocytes. Iron storage within the cell is in the form of ferritin. You brought that up before. Ferritin are complexes of iron bound together. A full-sized ferritin molecule has something on the order of 4,500 iron atoms bound to it. So you can imagine these tiny little transferrin proteins that only hold two irons compared to this ferritin structure that hepatocytes and macrophages carry around, which is 4,500 uh, iron atoms at a time. It's a crazy so, number, yeah, and, and an important one to understand. So for those who are I'm trying to figure out when blood work is done uh, to determine their iron status, iron in itself, the iron testing or Fe3 plus testing that does occur on blood work is one piece of the puzzle, but your ferritin number is actually a very, very important number as well to determine about your iron storage. And so essentially what's the reserve, what's that savings account of iron that's present? 4,500 atoms of iron per ferritin molecule versus two or four in heme or transferrin when it comes to other forms of iron when you're testing on blood. Yeah, and this is a really important point to sort of tease out. And you're absolutely right. Ferritin levels are very important, but by and large, they tell you how much iron is being stored mm -hmm. inside your cells. Transferrin levels are a blood level. That's telling you how much iron is in circulation in your bloodstream. Now, it is possible, and there is some level of iron that's not bound to transferrin that's in your bloodstream, but by and large, that's dangerous because iron that's not bound to transferrin, the reason transferrin binds to iron is because iron has the ability to oxidize things and participate in uh, chemical reactions that can damage cells. There's reactive oxygen species that either are intracellular or extracellular that can be damaging. The Fenton reaction is actually involved in oxidizing fat. And we talked about the fact that oxidized low-density lipoproteins can actually end up leading to atherosclerosis and other problems. But this difference between ferritin levels and transferrin levels or circulating levels of iron is really important to understand. You want to have a level of transferrin floating through your bloodstream with iron filled bound to it at a sizable level so it's available to your other cells. Mm -hmm. When your ferritin levels are very high, that can mean one of two things. It can mean that your dietary intake of iron is very high and you lose the ability to store anymore. But it can also mean that you have a high level of inflammation. Mm -hmm. And so now there's an opportunity for us to sort of dive into talking about what happens when your body is invaded with a pathogen, a bacteria has entered your body, it's in your bloodstream, or it's in some tissue, and your body needs to protect itself. Now, obviously, one of the ways it protects itself, it releases macrophages to go try to elements of your innate immune system to go battle. But one of the things that those pathogens wants, because every cell needs iron, is those pathogens actually are looking to grab whatever iron they can out of the bloodstream. And your body doesn't want to lose its iron. Mm. So part of the inflammatory process is to send out the message, which is, again, this hormone hepcidin, that says, I want all my cells in this body to stop releasing iron. And so inflammation actually can lead to anemia. Now, anemia is a condition where there's low levels of circulating iron, low levels of iron available to 
make blood cells. Your, your red blood cells actually don't have enough oxygen carrying capacity. You get fatigued, you're tired, your cells aren't being oxygenated enough. And that comes as a result of not necessarily not having enough iron in your body. You could actually, in this sort of paradoxical state of iron overload, but anemia. You can be anemic and have iron overload problems simultaneously. And it happens in cases where you have chronic inflammation and it happens to be a side effect of obesity and metabolic disease. It's actually one of the critical aspects of metabolic disease. As a really simple analogy, you can almost state that the circulating iron, whether in hemoglobin or in the transferrin state, are almost like the checking accounts of iron and what's available like the quote-unquote cash available to those who are in need. So you could have paper money cash and you could have checking account cash available and those are your hemoglobin and your transferrin. And then you've got the savings account that's locked away that you are unable to get to and that's the ferritin. And when you go into that state of anemia, what can happen is essentially that savings account is locked and you're unable to access the savings account and the checking account becomes depleted and the cash becomes depleted. And that's where the anemia sets in. So just a simple analogy for those who are looking for a way to think about that differently. Yeah. I like the analogy of the castaway who's on a raft in the middle of the ocean, water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Yeah. So you have this massive probably the largest mass of water on the earth is in the ocean. So as a result, you see water all around you, but it's salt water, you can't drink it. Yeah. Um, it's all bound in ferritin inside the hepatocytes and inside the macrophages and tissue that's storing it, but none of it's being released to the rest of the cells that need it. You have anemia. We talked about oxygen carrying capacity of red blood cells and the number of red blood cells that can be manufactured. There are other things that iron does. As I mentioned before, up in the central nervous system, iron is involved in the manufacture of, of neurotransmitters and the synthesis of them. But in the body, in every cell, iron is used in an iron sulfide compound by your mitochondria, which are the energy sources of your cells. So those cells need that iron in order to generate energy so that they can run their cellular functions, things like DNA synthesis, things like protein synthesis, all of these things are in some measure dependent on the presence of iron and the ability of the mitochondria, which are the energy sources of your cells to make energy, to make ATP. You really can't overstate the importance of good iron homeostasis and the importance of macrophages in the process. And frankly, controlling those macrophages to not be in an inflamed state is something that was a central part of what we've talked about because the autonomic nervous system plays a role in it. Maybe jumping one step ahead, talking about heart failure patients. The things that we see in heart failure patients a lot is a level of anemia. We see it in hypertension patients also, a level of anemia that is associated with iron deficiency because of sympathetic activation. So again, sympathetic nervous system activation is associated with inflammation. So if you're inflamed, if you've got an infection or a chronic disease or a chronic state that's inflamed, you have a higher level of sympathetic activation. And that's associated in heart failure patients and hypertension patients with an iron deficiency because of this process that we've talked about where hepcidin levels go up and there's this need to store iron and not release it into the bloodstream. Fortunately, the body has some compensatory actions that it can take or that may occur that will reduce hepcidin levels and start to release more iron, but it's really a last-ditch effort. We can talk a little bit about that as, as we go forward. For sure. This is an important piece of the puzzle and where that vagus nerve parasympathetic activation plays an important role is in controlling that inflammation and controlling or limiting the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. So when we go into a sympathetic state in an acute scenario, this is a good thing. We're supposed to be able to go into the sympathetic state in an acute scenario when there's an acute stress or something that's challenging our body from the homeostatic norm where we're balanced that pushes us into this fight or flight state. In order to support this, our body sends blood flow to the area, it creates inflammatory cytokines and adds them either locally to the area or systemically when, when required. 
And in the acute scenario, the intention is to eliminate the source of that stress, eliminate the cause of that stress, whether it's some sort of physical trauma or biochemical trauma that needs to be eliminated. That's where the sympathetic activation is going to come in really handy. When your vagus nerve is activated, when it starts to turn on and we're able to shift back to parasympathetic, then we don't get into this hyperactive sympathetic state. And the energy processes required for inflammation to occur are tremendous. That requires a lot of blood flow. It requires a ton of iron. It requires it. And that's where a lot of the depletion can occur if this inflammation becomes chronic, if it becomes uncontrolled. And that uncontrolled inflammation often occurs not simply because that root cause hasn't been entirely dealt with, but rather we're unable to shift back to parasympathetic. And this occurs when vagal tone is decreased and we don't have a good strong foundation on the parasympathetic nervous system. We're not able to get back from that inflammatory acute state. It remains too long. And this is where we get into these anemic states. This is where vagus nerve activation really does help you get back from that inflamed sympathetic activated side. No question. And one of the things that your body can do in order to break this cycle, as I said, it's a sort of a last ditch effort rather than simply moving back into a parasympathetic state while it's still in that chronically inflamed state. Because if you're significantly obese and you're in a chronically inflamed state, simply putting yourself in a rest and digest and restore mode is very difficult. It's even possible because your body is chronically inflamed. But one of the things that happens is that as a result of that impaired ability of red blood cells to carry oxygen to the tissue, the tissue becomes hypoxic. And hypoxic tissue has the ability to send signals that reduce the release of hepcidin and then sort of allow the liver to release iron sort of as a last ditch effort. I think of it as you don't want to give up what you're trying to keep from being eaten by a parasite, but if your body needs it, you're willing to sacrifice some of it in order to have the levels of iron be high enough that at least some of it is getting to the tissues that it needs to. So hypoxia is one of the ways that you can do it. Another way, and this is specifically associated with muscle cells, because muscle cells are also a tissue that needs iron. Myoglobin, which is involved in muscle function, is critically important and involves and contains iron. When muscle cells die or are overexerted, et cetera, one of the things that can happen is that those cells get taken up by macrophages and the macrophage in the muscle tissue then recycles that iron right back to myoblasts, which are the progenitor cells that create muscle tissue. So there's a much the same way you have this recycling of red blood cells, billions of them, hundreds of billions a day are being recycled primarily in the spleen, but to a certain extent in the liver also, where that iron is being recycled back into the newly formed red blood cells from the dead ones. You have the same thing going on in the tissue in your muscles, where muscles are, cells are failing, they're dying, they're being regenerated by myoblasts, and the iron is being recycled in part by macrophages. If those macrophages are allowed to be in an anti-inflammatory or non-inflammatory state, they perform that task better. No better way of seeing that than in the central nervous system where they've done a lot of work to demonstrate that the microglial cells, when your brain is inflamed, your microglial cells will take up iron. Now, what kind of iron is it taking up? It's taking up transferrin. It's taking up that protein that's protein-bound iron and bringing it into the microglial cell and taking it away. Inflammation then leads to a failure to produce the right neurotransmitters. When we talked about how the central nervous system functions, one of the things we talked about was this sort of pathological feedback loop that you get into, where you have inflammation leading to neurotransmitter dysfunction or neurotransmitter imbalance, that leads to hyperexcitation, which then leads to things like migraine attacks with aura or even seizures, and that that leads to more inflammation. That feedback loop, the part we're talking about the role of iron is in inflammation and the microglial cells becoming inflamed. And as a result, taking up that transferrin, taking away the iron that's needed 
to actually synthesize the neurotransmitters. One of the things we talked about along the way, I, I believe, was the synthesis of serotonin and how serotonin can be the outcome of a positive biosynthetic pathway from tryptophan. But if it's not, if it's a pathological state, an inflamed state, it will, through indolamine 2,3-deoxygenase, move down to canurinine, which is associated with depression and pain. And so one of the things that inflammation does is disrupt the production of serotonin. Why is that happening? Well, it's in part due to the inflamed microglial cells taking up iron, which blocks the ability of that tryptophan to be made into serotonin. So again, interesting. But yet when those microglial cells are in a non-inflamed state, what are they doing when they're in an anti-inflammatory state? They're taking up that iron that isn't bound to transferrin that I talked about before being dangerous. So part of the anti-inflammatory state is just cleaning up things. It's doing homeostatic things. It's doing its, its housekeeping tasks of clearing out any iron that isn't bound to transferrin that could actually be damaging. So again, inflammation and your autonomic nervous system state and how your iron metabolism is functioning is all part of how your brain functions, how your liver functions, how your muscles function, how really every part of your body is functioning. When it comes to those particular neurotransmitters, are we often seeing an excitatory effect? Are we getting more glutamate activation in those particular situations where we get into states of anxiety or, or depression because we're in that chronically inflamed state for too long? Well, I think people who know or have experienced anemia will tell you that they're not only fatigued physically, they're fatigued mentally, and there's a depression that is associated with it. There's a low mood that is associated with it. And that is a function of exactly what we've been talking about. And what you, you're suggesting is, yes, iron imbalance can lead to personality changes, can change your ability to function uh, just cognitively. It's well established even within the reproductive field that women who are pregnant need high levels of iron for neurodevelopment. Folic acid and other things that help your body process iron are critically important for your healthy development of a child. That's true, obviously, once you're born, you want to have, we put iron, iron fortified cereal. I mean, it, in some cases, it's sort of silly how they do it. They literally put iron filings into the cereal. You could take a magnet and roll it through your cornflakes, and sometimes you'll actually find iron filings attached to the magnet that were actually embedded into the uh, cereal. Yeah. Not, that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's sort of an inefficient way of getting iron into your body. Yeah, you might want to get it from the sources that the planet is providing rather than our manufactured versions, I think is probably the best way to go about that. Yes. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit about the storage of iron in a few different areas. So we talked a little bit about storage of iron in the liver and the function of Kupfer cells, which are those tissue resident macrophages in the liver. So hepatocytes are a major storage site of iron as well. Where does the function of Kupfer cells come in in this equation? So Kupfer cells are also a storage mechanism. So you're absolutely right. Hepatocytes are, are your your body's primary storage, but the storage level goes up and down and, and your liver can be damaged. I mean, if you've had too much to drink or you've been encountered a toxin that's damaging or, or a pathogen that's damaging to the liver, you can lose your iron storage capability temporarily. And so you need macrophages, especially Kupfer cells in your liver to be able to store excess iron. But Kupfer cells also do a lot more. They have the ability to do many of the tasks that hepatocytes do. Hepatocytes being the liver cells that store iron, but also produce hepcidin. One of the things that Kupfer cells can do is store iron the way hepatocytes do, maybe not to the same extent, but they can do that. But they can also produce hepcidin themselves. So Kupfer cells are sort of stand-ins for hepatocytes. Storage of iron can happen also in macrophages in the spleen because the spleen is the location where a tremendous number of red blood cells are being recycled. And those red blood cell phagocytizing macrophages in the red pulp tissue of, of the spleen have the ability to take up iron. Iron is also processed through your kidneys. And so your kidneys have the ability 
to your kidney macrophages have the ability to store iron. There's iron storage that happens in the endothelial lining of the stomach. In fact, the endothelial lining of the stomach is one of the primary ways in which your body sheds iron. We've spent a lot of time talking about how iron is recycled in the body. Mm -hmm. And it's recycled to such a large and efficient extent that you would think that we actually don't need very much dietary iron, but we do actually need to take up about 10% of our daily iron needs through diet. So basically once every 10 days, we're cycling through all of that iron. Some of it is excreted through sweat and through your, your urine, but a big source of iron loss is actually the endothelial lining of the intestines and because that's where that dietary iron is being taken in. If there's inflammation, they hold on to that iron but they don't survive very long. They're constantly being recycled. And so they're being sloughed off from the intestinal wall into the intestines and excreted. A sizable amount of iron is actually excreted through your feces every day. That's where you need to take in more iron to, to replenish it. Clinically, when I'm seeing patients that have what's easily described or commonly described as leaky gut syndrome, this is where we see that the sloughing off of these endothelial cells in the gut lining becoming too quick, too rapid. And this is where depletion of iron can occur potentially through the body as well. So anemia can also be linked heavily to some sort of gut dysfunction that is leading to endothelial cells being sloughed off too quickly. There are a few very important tests that can, or, or markers on the organic acid test that can help to point to this particular issue. So for those that are interested in this, look into organic acid testing to determine how quickly are those cells being depleted and, and brought back into place. And if this is happening too quickly, then there's some sort of potential bacterial dysbiosis or some sort of pathogenic process occurring within the gut that could be leading to the iron depletion and the loss of these important nutrients. Yeah, actually, leaky gut is a fantastic model to look at for several of the different aspects of iron metabolism. As you mentioned, leaky gut is basically an intrusion of bacteria through the, the what's supposed to be an, an integral surface into the sterile environment of the body. And that leads to inflammation. Inflammation leads to, as we said, the liver producing hepcidin because there's a desire to prevent the release of iron at that point because it could be taken up by pathogens. It's a, it's a way to store and protect and inhibit the release of iron that could be stolen, if you will, by the pathogens. So leaky gut leads to inflammation. Inflammation leads to storing the iron, not releasing it. It leads to those, even the endothelial lining cells being not only sloughed off, but also not releasing the iron that they do take up. So you end up with iron being stored in the endothelial lining and if it's released, but it's not stopping red blood cells from being turned over. It's not stopping the loss of the inefficiency in that process and ultimately the excretion of iron through sweat and through urine. So you end up with both the loss of iron, so you're losing iron out of your system, but the system is still saying, I'm inflamed, I want to store the iron, I don't want to release it into the bloodstream. So you can have that situation where even though you're trying to get iron into your system, taking supplements, taking even IV iron going into your bloodstream won't stay there because the inflammation is saying, take it up. What happens during that inflammation is not only the release of hepcidin that blocks the exporter from cells of their iron into bloodstream, but it also increases the expression of the receptors that take up the iron out of the bloodstream. So you have both iron being pulled out of the bloodstream as well as iron not being released into the bloodstream, all because of leaky gut syndrome. So leaky gut leads to inflammation, leads to this uptake of iron and the storage and no release of iron, as well as the loss of the, of the endothelial lining of the gut. Yeah, leaky gut is one of those really important and often overlooked potential triggers for many inflammatory processes within the body. And, and often what I see is some sort of dysbiosis, whether we're looking on a, a gut stool test to see if there's a good balance of the 
good bacteria that should be present that are uh, working symbiotically with our cells or the presence of pathogenic or dysbiotic bacteria, bacteria that are opportunistic when the immune system is a little bit more depleted or when there are opportunities for those cells to jump up, then those bacteria can often pop into place. Then another potential major trigger for the leaky gut as well that I see in practice all the time are parasites. These are often protozoan or worm-based parasites, things like blastocystis hominis, diantamoeba fragilis. On the worm side, tania solium, uh, tania saginata. These are worms and protozoan parasites that love to steal, for lack of a better word, from the digestive tract, from the dietary sources of iron as well. So in addition to stealing those dietary sources, it's often a trigger for that leaky gut, which can then deplete the iron amount or the iron that's present, the transferrin iron, as well as lead to ferritin stores increasing and, and being maintained within the liver. Things to look for. If iron is an issue, if anemia is an issue for you, then macrophages are at the forefront of this in regards to mechanistically how they're keeping things homeostatic, I guess, within those inflammatory bounds. Yeah, this is where the autonomic nervous system that we love to talk about comes into play because the autonomic nervous system has ways of restoring that anti-inflammatory or non-inflammatory state that we associate with the parasympathetic activity and, and a non-sympathetically overdriven state that will actually allow for more iron to be released into the bloodstream, more iron to be available to your cells, red blood cell manufacture, neurotransmitter production, and other things that allow your body to function more comfortably. And I, I say comfortably because it literally is reducing pain levels. It is reducing, it's giving you the energy you need. It's letting you have the clarity of thought that you want to have when you're awake. It allows you to sleep better. I mean, people talk about the fact that anemia makes you sleepy, but it doesn't mean that you're well rested. It doesn't mean that you get great sleep. So iron I mean, we think of iron as sort of like almost like a kid thing. Well, it's it's fortified in milk, it's fortified in cereals, but my goodness, it's important in degenerative disorders. Alzheimer's disease has a component of iron dysfunction associated with it. So just to dive into that for a second, because I mean, Alzheimer's disease is something that I think anybody would fear getting. And what we see in the the dead tissue, uh, the dead neural tangles, the the beta amyloid protein aggregates, what you see is high levels of iron that are associated with those aggregates. And we see that part of the reason why those cells died in the first place was because of reactive oxygen species that were released by microglial cells as part of their attempt to either take on the aggregates and, and chew on them as if they're trying to rid your body or your brain of those aggregates. And frankly, presence of healthy levels of iron in the central nervous system enable the microglial cells to do a better job of clearing those aggregates. We actually see that also being consequence of iron deficiency is the upregulation of ineffective microglial attempts at clearing those pro-inflammatory aggregates. Yeah, this is profound and, and really important information here when it comes to the development of these chronic conditions like Alzheimer's. I think atherosclerosis is also a really important one to look at here as well. And the production of these breakdowns in the lining of the uh, blood vessel walls. Let's talk a little bit about, we had a whole episode talking about atherosclerosis and vagus nerve involvement, but let's just quickly cover that particular topic of atherosclerosis? Sure. So atherosclerosis is the buildup of inflammatory tissue in the wall of the artery or the blood vessel, and which is largely the result of the macrophages that are embedded in that tissue reacting to fat that's correctly being transported across the wall of the, of the artery. So in your bloodstream, there are lipoproteins, high-density and low-density lipoproteins that need to be transported across the wall of the artery. If in the bloodstream you have these iron molecules that are oxidizing the LDLs, they become inflammatory when they are 
pro-inflammatory when they move across that tissue. And when it's moving across that wall of the artery, the macrophages there will see that and will view it as dangerous and will attempt to eat it. And when it does and it, it phagocytizes it, you end up with these inflammatory material inside the macrophage that in small quantities can be dealt with. In fact, really, honestly, the macrophages are doing that in order to prevent damage. But what happens is as they continue to have to do that, they become inflamed themselves and can actually, they become what are called foam cells. And those foam cells will ultimately become necrotic themselves, leading to more tissue or more macrophages being brought into that tissue from the outside. Monocytes that are floating through the bloodstream being recruited into that tissue to continue the fight. Monocytes, by and large, are pro-inflammatory. It's probably worth spending a moment talking about the differences between tissue-resident macrophages, most of which actually are present for your entire life, are created or actually recruited into various tissues during development in utero. Those cells last for your entire life. They primarily are anti-inflammatory, doing housekeeping tasks, really critical tasks. Let's, let's not even call them housekeeping. They're, they're the construction crew, the maintenance crew. They're the, the critical cells that keep everything humming along and working. But they do have the ability to become inflamed, as I just mentioned, when, for example, oxidized LDL is coming through the tissue. They see it as dangerous and they do their job of taking it and engulfing it. Monocytes are there to augment that inflammatory process. They move out of the bloodstream into the tissue when they see inflammation and when they're recruited in, they become tissue-recruited macrophages as a result. So the monocyte turns into a macrophage in that tissue, but it's not the same type of macrophage. It's not a long-lived macrophage that's going to, to live for your entire life and it can't reproduce itself the same way the tissue resident macrophages. They come in, they become macrophages really only in the sense that they are become inflammatory phagocytic cells. They progress through that inflammatory process and, and perpetuate it and even exacerbate it to the point where there's a giant necrotic core of dead tissue that's got this oxidized LDL and the remains of macrophages there. And that then can become calcified and it becomes a site where blood flow is not flowing smoothly. And if you don't have what's referred to as laminar or smooth flow of blood through the artery, it can clot and it can be the site at which clots form and you can get an occlusion of the artery or worse yet, you can have a release of that clot into the bloodstream that can go somewhere and cause a stroke in your brain or a pulmonary embolus or something like that, that can be really quite damaging yeah. um, and, and even lethal. So the role that iron plays in this process is it is part of the process of oxidizing that LDL that creates the pro-inflammatory signal that yeah. leads the macrophages starting. But the other part of it is that iron not being in the right levels in your body sort of the take up of that storage of iron. So all you have is this floating around, you know, iron that's just in single atom form or ion form is that you end up getting sympathetically activated. As part of that inflammation, you're having sympathetic activation and sympathetic activation recruits monocytes into the bloodstream. It says, it's saying to your body, I need more help for my macrophages that are inflamed. And so monocytes get released from the spleen, they get released into the bloodstream, they get released from the bone marrow into the bloodstream and then get recruited into the tissue only to then become inflammatory and cause more problems. Yeah, I've got a great analogy for this, but it might take a little long. So bear with me really quickly. The tissue resident macrophages are like the security teams and the maintenance teams of every single organ. Think of an office building downtown, for example. We've got this building crew and construction crew that builds up this wonderful office building during development in our body. For example, the tissue resident macrophages that build out the liver or the microglial cells that help with the build out of the brain. These are the tissue resident construction cells. These teams need to remain present in our organs 
through our entire lifespan. These are the security and maintenance teams for those buildings. Without the presence of these tissue resident macrophages, the function of those organs will be depleted. Essentially, these buildings will break down, will have plumbing issues and electrical issues that don't get cleaned out and maintained and supported because we've got people coming in and out of these buildings that are potentially creating a bit of a breakdown. So we've got these teams that are ensuring that this building or this organ functions really well. Now, when there is an emergency, these teams, these security teams or these maintenance teams have to call in help. They have to call in the firefighters, the police. They've got to call in the the teams that can help in an acute scenario to stop that emergent inflammatory experience. And those are those tissue recruited macrophages or those monocytes that we're bringing into those particular tissues. As we, in an acute scenario, eliminate that threat, then those tissue recruited macrophages will eventually go away or die off and and not have to bear the brunt of the pair, but the maintenance team does. And if that maintenance team can help become that construction team again and help rebuild that organ, that damaged tissue effectively, then that's what needs to be kind of recruited. That's that's that important piece that the vagus nerve stimulation, that the parasympathetic nervous system is meant to do is that after an emergent situation, we're able to turn those tissue resident macrophages, the security and maintenance team that were there from before are meant to go back to that maintenance and construction crew state so that they can rebuild. Because when the firefighters come in, they unfortunately will create damage. They'll create some sort of destruction while eliminating the source of that destruction. And so that rebuild needs to occur. When the parasympathetic nervous system cannot be turned on effectively, when the vagus nerve tone is down, then these tissue resident macrophages are not able to become that construction crew, and they go into an inflammatory phase, an inflammatory state, where they will almost become like a second-tier firefighters that will create continuous breakdown to try to eliminate a quote-unquote reason for that breakdown, the inflammatory trigger when that inflammatory trigger has essentially gone away potentially or uh, hasn't been fully dealt with. And that's where we get into the state of chronic inflammation, chronic breakdown. And that's where uh, that important piece of vagus nerve activation needs to be taken care of. So yes, a very long analogy, but I'm hoping that it clarifies for those that are looking for an understanding of how these different cells perform different tasks and what needs to happen in order to allow for those tasks to be completed. I think it's a great analogy. I think it's a wonderful way of thinking about it. And, and I'm going to extend it uh, at, the, at the risk of, of extending the story a little longer, the analogy a little longer. One of the things that those macrophages that are tasked with regenerating the tissue after that you know, firefighting crew came in and caused damage, if they are themselves not in the appropriate state when they are doing that regeneration, one of the things that they will do and it's not necessarily a bad thing in, in small quantities, um, but it is when it's a chronically chronically continuous event or cycle where there's damage, there's regeneration that's improper, et cetera, you end up with fibrosis. So macrophages, even in their anti-inflammatory state, in their regenerative state, will use techniques temporarily to treat the problem and, you know, because there's now an acute problem. We've got is the plumbers came in and tore a hole in the wall to get to the pipe to stop the leak. But now we've got a hole in the wall. How are we going to fix this? Well, the first thing you want to do is you want to patch it up. Mm-hmm. And you might put duct tape over it or something like that. Duct tape is not too pretty. That's what happens when you get a scar. When you cut yourself, the macrophages come in and heal, but there's a scar. What happens Scars fade over time. Why do they fade over time? Scars fade over time because the tissue resident macrophages have completed their task of sealing the wound. And not just a scab, but now it's that the skin is sealed. But there's still an ongoing regenerative process to take away the less appealing structure. Now, it's fine on your skin. You could survive with scars, et cetera. Some people think scars are sexy or whatever. But, but in your liver or in your kidneys, or in your organs, excessive fibrosis actually leads to the kidney not functioning or the liver not functioning properly. And so you see that in chronic hypertension patients or patients with 
chronic liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that leads to NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, what you end up with is the macrophages attempting to heal the problem, but their temporary solution, their immediate solution under the inflammatory pressures is to cause fibrosis. So it's actually a form of M2, M2 macrophage, I think it's the B macrophage that leads to fibrosis. You want to find the sort of the fibrosis or fibrotic tissue resolving state, which is much more parasympathetically driven. It's not your recovery while stressed. Mm -hmm. You know, we can all recover while stressed, but we just like sleep, for example. If you live in a very stressful environment, you're under chronic stress, that doesn't mean you're not getting sleep at night, but it means that that sleep is not restorative. It is not restorative to the level that you need. In order to really get great sleep, in order to really restore, you need to move out of that stressed environment. That's why we go on vacations. You go on vacation, everybody sleeps so well on vacation because, or we want them to, because they're out of that stressful environment. Now they're in total parasympathetic mode. Now they can sleep really well, restore everything they need to restore, and then they can go back into that stressful environment, sort of refreshed and renewed. Yeah, body needs the same thing. The macrophages need the same thing. Yeah, and that makes so much sense. And and really understanding the mechanism by which this is occurring is so important to then what you can then do about it. Because if you know what you're trying to accomplish, which is to help support that rebuild and that recovery and that full parasympathetic activation that needs to happen in certain circumstances, it has to happen in those appropriate opportunities for it to then occur. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking about the original question that led to this wonderful analogy that we've now sort of explained to people. You asked about microbleeds, much like the leaky gut syndrome. Yeah. Part of what happens in that atherosclerotic plaque development is you get what are sort of referred to as micro hemorrhages or micro bleeds that occur as that tissue becomes damaged. The endothelial lining of the tissue becomes no longer integral. It's no longer a smooth barrier. And as a result, you get red blood cells that get caught up in those pits and valleys and they need to be removed. And so another aspect of this inflammatory environment that gets created initially by those oxidized LDLs moving through the tissue is these microbleeds or microhemorrhaging that occurs. And you get, in some cases, angiogenesis that surrounds it, but by and large, you get macrophage activation and there's this pro-inflammatory environment, but there's also this iron recycling issue where iron is now present, but in high quantities because there's been this phagocytizing by the macrophages of these red blood cells, but these macrophages are also breaking down. So you get this buildup of sort of inappropriate levels of iron built up in this tissue that can be actually toxic and can lead to more of these reactive oxygen species in the oxidation. So it's this feed forward problem that just really has a very difficult time of breaking. The only real way of doing it is to reduce the inflammation, increase the parasympathetic tone, reduce the sympathetic tone, reduce the number of monocytes that are being recruited to the area. Mm -hmm. All of these systems really function together in harmony, both for good and for bad. And what you really want to do is drive as much as possible the good side, which is exercise. It's it's doing things that are restorative. There are ways we've talked about of activating the parasympathetic from the outside, things like stimulating the vagus nerve, or there's cholinergic medications that can actually help these situations as well. But basically, you want to activate that cholinergic anti-inflammatory signaling that will reduce inflammation and restore parasympathetic tone. Yeah, no question about it. I want to end with one last topic here, and that is with regards to cancer and how cancer is involved with that iron metabolism as well, the process of the production of tumors and cancerous processes. Well, cancer is just like any other cell. It needs iron in order to function. Cancer cells tend to function at a very high metabolic level. And so one of the things that cancer cells do, much like pathogens, is they're trying to gather more iron into them. And so one of the things that we've seen is EGFR positive cancers. There's actually a whole set of antibody drugs that are designed to go after EGFR because one of the things that cancer will do is upregulate 
the expression of EGFR, which is epidermal growth factor receptor, which actively activates transferrin receptor expression. So again, transferrin receptors are receptors on cells that basically import transferrin, iron-bound transferrin, into the cell. So one of the ways that cancer aggregates iron to itself, takes iron away from the rest of the tissue or out of the bloodstream is by creating epidermal growth factor receptor, upregulating transferrin receptors, and bringing more iron in. So one of the things that it will also do by inhibiting EGFR is block both the transferrin receptor as well as DMTI. DMTI receptors are the importers of not the transferrin-bound iron, but the ions of iron that are floating through the bloodstream that are unbound. You know, all of these things are being upregulated by cancer. The other thing that it downregulates, cancer will often downregulate the exporters of iron. There's a receptor called, or a, a transporter called FPN1. FPN is really the only structure that we know of that is pretty dedicated to exporting iron out of cells. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about it, but it's really important. And, and controlling FPN levels is part of the iron homeostasis that's disrupted by cancer. Cancer will tend to downregulate FPN. So a, a potential strategy for defeating cancer is finding a way to upregulate FPN expression and actually take the iron away from the cancer. It actually slows the progression of the cancer down, prevents metastasis, which is uh, obviously that's when cancer becomes, you know, not just dangerous, but deadly um, when it metastasizes. And iron metabolism is a big part of how cancer functions and disrupting cancer's dysfunction of the metabolism is a potential therapy, a therapeutic avenue that is uh, being explored right now. And I think it has real potential. It sounds very much like a lot of these disease processes and, and really clearly stated with cancer is that when these disease processes are occurring, it's almost like they're hoarding the iron. They're keeping it to themselves. Cancer in itself is upregulating the importers of iron. And so we're importing more and more and holding it internally within those cancerous cells and not allowing it to come out through the FPN particular protein. So what we're, what we're doing is essentially hoarding. And very similarly with regards to atherosclerosis, it's we're absorbing the iron that's present and that's leading to a breakdown. We're not trying to hoard in that particular case, but it's leading to that inflammatory trigger and that inflammatory cascade that is occurring. Similar patterns are going to occur in liver breakdown and kidney breakdown in different organs. So it sounds very much like iron is heavily relied upon for that energy production and processes that are homeostatic and allow for iron to come in and out are important for our optimal function where hoarding of the iron and kind of taking it away from where it needs to be and separating the checking account from the savings account and not allowing that cash to flow between accounts effectively is what leads to the disease processes. You know, the parallel you make to a bank account is really good. I think it actually in, in the macroscopic economy is there's a similar model. You know, you need money to flow through the system. So in order for businesses to be able to function properly, much the same way the supply chain needs to function. You, you have the imports coming in, but if they're sitting at the dock and they're in storage and nothing's actually getting into the country and into businesses' hands, then the economy slows down. So we're sort of living through some of that right now as we work through supply chain problems. But the idea is really very similar, that if you can have the iron, you can have the imports, but if it's being stored away and it's not being used, then there better be a good reason for it. And inflammation is at least temporarily a good reason for it. But when that becomes chronic inflammation, it can become a bad thing and the economy shuts down and cells don't produce what they need to produce and your body becomes anemic and growth stops. So what we want to do is we want to maximize that flow of iron through the system. And the way to do that is to upregulate the parasympathetic tone, upregulate that sense that iron can flow freely. There's no danger. Let's function at a high level and, and share the iron, if you will. So share the metal. <laughs> iron, iron being hoarded is the reason for the recession, period. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very clear parallel, very, very relevant to what we're living through right now, but 
just a really easy analogy and I don't think there's a better time for us to end the discussion. Phenomenal talk today. Thank you so much for joining JP. And for those who are listening, please share this with anybody that you feel needs to hear this, whether it's a practitioner, a patient or a loved one, share this and let's help upgrade everyone's health. Have a wonderful day.